Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Web Chatham Report, episode 59. North Carolina on a rather cold day, 37, 38, maybe 40, pretty chilly. We were up in the 70s last week, so this is a little painful, but then we had a giant crazy rainstorm and it was terrifying and now it's cold. It still hasn't snowed though, so I guess I'm not complaining. The grass is still green. I don't even know if we've had a frost yet, to be honest. I can, we must have at night, but uh I kind of like it, and I'm not going to lie. Uh, I was outside today, though, and I was like, ooh, this is chilly. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you better get used to it, dude. You're going to Alaska in, like, 12 days. And it's been, you know, 20 below or so in Fairbanks for the last few months, <laughs> weeks. Uh, let's see what it is right now. Right now, oh, uh, you know what? It's not bad in Fairbanks right now. Ooh, but on Wednesday, it gets down to 26 below. But then it warms up again. Might be above zero while I'm there. We will see. We will see. I'll keep you all apprised. I have been thinking a lot about going home and thinking about Fairbanks. I've been thinking about my family and my friends up there, and uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm looking forward to it. I'm a little, a little scared, a little uh, trepidatious, but I think overall it should be, it should be a good time. I'm staying at this hotel up there called Sophie Station, which is where I worked as a house cleaner when I was 17 years old with my friend Julie Pike. I don't know what happened to her; she was awesome. But uh, I've stayed there a few times since. You know, it has kitchenettes in the room so you can try and eat healthy in Fairbanks, which is not the easiest thing in the world, aside from all the great Thai food, a lot of great Thai food in Fairbanks. But uh, yeah, everything's going okay otherwise in Chatham County, not a lot. I'm turning my head to look out the window as if if I look out my window, I will see Chatham County and remember that something's been going on. Not a lot uh, down here in county socializing, though. I'm going to see my friend Colin this evening. That should be fun. I haven't seen him in a couple weeks. That'll be a good time. Uh, we got a baby shower coming up. A couple other, a couple other things, but nothing, nothing huge. Uh, it's just keeping on, keeping on. I haven't been to New York since I talked to you guys last either because I've been home for three weeks. It's been amazing. Had to do a rejigger in my schedule because we have a board meeting at work coming up next week, and we have. Uh, the company dinner, we do it once a year and we fly in everybody from all over the place. So that's really exciting. And, uh, because of my trip to Alaska. So I had to like sort of jigger the schedule. So I got three weeks at home. It's been lovely. I'm getting a lot of projects done. I've been spending a lot of time with my baby. <laughs> She's good. She's definitely in the terrible twos though, man. It's getting some days you're just kind of like, Oh my God. She's got these things, certain things that she just cries at and every time and you, you know it's coming and you, you've been spending days and days and days trying to figure out what it is. Like when we get ready to go out every time, just when it's me and her, not when, when, when Emma's around, but it's like I get her shoes on, I get her coat on, I get her hat on, I get my shoes on, I get my coat on, all that goes great. And then I have to take three steps to this little bowl where I keep my wallet and phone and keys. And when I take those three steps, she just starts bawling. And then she runs away and then she just stands there in the middle of the kitchen and screams hand, hand, hand. And I'm like, okay, you want my hand? You want hand up? You want hand? What? And I take a step towards her and she backs up and runs away and she's just screaming, you know, and I'm doing this at like eight in the morning and Emma's asleep and I'm just like, you can't be screaming in the middle of the house at eight in the morning, man. You, we got to go to the basement or the garage because you're going to wake up your mom. 
So I have to pick her up and run to the garage and I do it every time and I don't know what she wants and it's really frustrating and I know eventually I'll have some sort of breakthrough about it or I will figure a way around it. Like I'll remember to get my wallet and phone and keys and move them over to where I get put her coat on. So when I get my coat on, I can put the wallet and keys in it and I don't have to take those three steps. I don't know. I'll figure something out, but oh my God. And then, you know, right now she insists on having a choice of three bibs at breakfast. And if I don't give her the choice of three bibs, she'll scream her head off. And then today she just decided to scream her head off anyway, because if the three bibs weren't enough choice. And she'll scream if you try and put the bib on her. She has to try and put the bib on herself, even though she's incapable of putting the bib on herself. So you got to wait till she's trying and then sneak putting the bib on her or she'll scream bloody murder. Just screams about this, screams about that. Anything she doesn't like immediately resorts to scream. It's like <laughs> immediate escalation to the nuclear option. And it's just exhausting. And I have a headache and it's been really rough today. Although I still do really like her and it hasn't even been really that bad of a day. She's just been doing it like all the time. And, but you know, and some days you just put up with it and you're like totally tolerant. And then the next day you're like, I can't take this. I had been deluding myself into thinking the terrible twos weren't going to be a thing for us because her fits aren't like uncontrollable long fits. I mean, she's had those in the past, but it's actually been a good while. They're just like little just obstacles. Just like, I must scream my head off because my water is six inches away. Okay, you need to calm down. You need to calm down. Uh, also, she's got a weird scratch on her butt, and I don't know how it got there, and it's kind of wigging me out. And I'm like, how do you get a scratch on your butt? Like, that's like a place that I've never had a scratch, and I'm 47 years old, and I've never had a scratch on my butt there. It's kind of strange. I'm just going to say that's kind of weird, right? Uh, the, yeah, anyway, other than that, she's great. <laughs> Life is great. <laughs> Honestly, it's probably because I've just been here three weeks and I didn't get a break. But then, you know, that's what my wife has got all the time. She's got more patience than I do, I swear to God. She's she's a lot better at it. What is that noise? Oh, yeah, I forgot to unplug the fridge. We've got this whole fridge problem still. One moment, please. All right, that's better. We have made some progress on the fridge problem. We uh, had a meeting with the solar power wall people, and we we're like, look, you know, we don't think this is related to the power walls, but it's on a circuit that the power walls are covering, and we could just call a regular electrician, and they're going to be like, I don't know, what are these weird power walls? So, like, I didn't really think about this when we got power walls. We've kind of screwed ourselves for using normal electricians for certain things, at least breaker-related, because they'll just blame the power walls. So, there's this guy, Steve, that works for the power wall company for, they're called Yes Solar. They're great. And Steve is awesome. He's like an old naval electrician from like aircraft carriers or something. And he knows everything. So, you know, he's got to come and like fix this breaker problem for us because the fridge isn't tripping the breaker in this room. And that room in there isn't tripping the breaker anymore now that we've moved the fridge. So it's clearly some fridge breaker interaction. And it's most likely like a power wall or like just replace a breaker. But he needs to tell us it's just replacing the breaker because if it's power wall related, another electrician might mess something up. It's a whole thing. And so I've got this fridge sitting next to me in my office, which is actually very convenient. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but it makes a lot of noise when you're recording. Anyway, uh, media report. So, uh, you know, all I've been doing for the last three weeks is archiving media of various sorts. So I've been kind of, you know, I've got a little outline on my podcast every week and I'm like, okay, well there's projects and there's media. And I'm like, well, the problem is now like the projects are media projects. I mean, I guess they always are when you're writing a book or recording, but this is more like not my media. It's just like archival stuff. Uh, so I don't know. I'm going to start it out in the media section. And so, you know what I'm talking about in the other parts, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> 
so I finished the Plex sorting. It's all up and running again. Uh, it's really awesome. It's 42 terabytes of video storage space and then another 16 terabytes for our time machine backups. It is fantastic. I'm really into it. I've got all the Blu-rays ripped. All my VHSs are ripped. Um, I found that old archive of all my old VHS and mini DV rips, and I've been going through them slowly, which has been pretty great. I found the... Um, Unfortunately, I only found Sean's tape, but I don't know, probably somewhere around the year 1999, Sean Drinkwater and I set out to make a documentary about Alston Moving Day, and we both shot a bunch of tapes and interviewed a bunch of people. And I have Sean's tape, I don't have mine, but Sean's tape on its own is probably enough to make it a pretty amazing Moving Day documentary. So I think I will eventually edit that into a documentary. I found one of the three only We Are All Drainage for Angels performances, which was my band with Benjamin Palmer, our noise band band. Uh, this iteration of the band actually features Chris Ewan from the Future Bible Heroes Magnetic Fields and Raziel Panic from Ushriek. I forgot he played in, in, in We Are All Drainage for Angels that one time. So that's pretty cool. I will get that ripped as well. And I did find some footage I don't remember ever seeing before. The vast majority of the footage is like parties I've watched a few times or, or a lot of live freeze pop shows, things like that. I've, I'll get those up there eventually too. But I found a whole thing, like a whole day of hanging out with Andy Shea and uh, Aug Stone and Sia at their house, Andy and Aug's house. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> I haven't watched it all yet. I mean, I'm ripping things at a faster rate than I can really watch them right now. So, you know, but it's pretty exciting. So that's all done. And then I got the backups over to the storage unit, all wrapped in tinfoil with multiple layers of tinfoil with, you know, some space in between them. So in case there's a EMP attack, I, I still will still have my data and you may mock me, but really it only costs $3 to buy a roll of tinfoil. So why not just take that extra step? <laughs> if there's ever an EMP, I'll be the only man with data. <laughs> I, have, I actually have a computer there wrapped in tinfoil and multiple layers and a Mac power supply and USB cables all wrapped in tinfoil. So if there's an EMP, I'll still be good. <laughs> I'm very proud of that. Uh, anyway, so that's all done and, uh, let's see. So then when I was doing that, okay, so I was doing that and I, this is where I left off, right? I was talking to you guys last time and I was listening to the cassette rips that they had made 10 years ago and I was listening to them all and I did listen to most of them. We'll talk about those during the cassette section, but there were a couple of them that were incorrect. Uh, one of them was labeled Joe Frank. Joe Frank was a spoken word artist that was on NPR throughout the country in the 90s. He's really good, uh, very interesting. He's got a site, actually, now, and you can buy his stuff, but uh, I have a few of them ripped. So I was like, oh, my God, I want to listen to Joe Frank. We used to be obsessed with that guy, me and my roommate, Mark Kitson. And I put it in, and the first side A was actually one of my old radio shows. And I don't know which one. I haven't matched that up yet. But I was like, oh, God. That's a problem. And then Kitty Power as well. I think I mentioned this. The Kitty Power was a uh, my friend Daryl and his, I think, sisters, 13-year-old and 14-year-old sisters, maybe cousins, I don't know, family members, girls, and they're called Kitty Power, and they're great. And one of the tapes I had, and the other one was mislabeled, and, mis and I'm like, oh, so I got to re-rip these. So I pulled those out, and then when I was pulling them out, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to see if my tape deck's still in good shape, and I'm just going to rip everything. I have about 200 tapes. Uh, about 50 of these tapes are just albums that you can get again, like the downward spiral. Don't need to rip that. Right. But most of them are mixtapes or things that I've made or things that friends have made for me or, or friends, uh, demos. The demos are the lot, most of the stuff I had ripped back 10 years ago. So it's really mixtapes. And I had tried to do mixtapes on Spotify quite some time ago. And if you, if you go to my Spotify, I am Rick underscore web on Spotify. There's some of my old mixtapes on there, but mostly CD mixtapes, but it actually doesn't really work well on Spotify because a lot of my mixtapes were mixed and 
and a lot of the songs are really obscure and they don't have them on Spotify and Spotify does a lot of changing like an artist might have an album uploaded and then they'll make a remaster of the album they'll re-upload it and then like Spotify breaks the links to the old ones and playlists it's really annoying it just doesn't really work so I did do 15 or 20 in Spotify around you know five years ago and they're up there if you want to check them out. But some of them have degenerated to only one or two songs now because Spotify just removes songs from the playlists. So it's not a really good place for archival. And also, I like the mixes. And I like, you know, I was like, so how am I going to do this? And I'm going to like, I decided I was just going to rip them all. And I was going to rip them as mixes. Because in the old days, I'd try and like make individual tracks. It's a giant hassle. It's too much labor intensive. But if you just rip them as mixes, side A, side B, it's actually pretty pleasant. And then you just scan the cover art. And do that. So I've been doing that and I've been posting one a day to Facebook and Instagram. I'm a little lazy with Instagram, but you know, I try to do it every day as well. And I've got 30, about 40 of them ripped now. I've posted about 10 to Instagram. I'm trying to do one a day or to Facebook. And I've been doing, you know, it was like the first batch was I had a bunch of cassettes that were unlabeled or loose and I had a bunch of cases that were loose. And I was like, well, these probably match. So <laughs> I was like, I'll start with these cassettes. And, but out of the 10 or so blank cassettes, only one of them actually matched up with one of the blank cases. So that was really annoying. So the first 10 were super labor intensive because I had to like write down the track list for each one of them, make a J card, do all that. So I've been posting those first. And then the second batch was the ones where I had cases, but no tapes. And those could go pretty quick because I'm, I'm remaking those in GarageBand, right? And it was really interesting because it's like, I can remember in my head, oh yeah, this tape, yeah, this one was mixed or this one wasn't mixed. And I'm sort of remaking in the same way. And that can go pretty quickly. You just sort of drag songs from iTunes into GarageBand and make a mix and hit output and it just spits it out and it's great. It's pretty quick unless you don't have the song anymore, in which case you got to go find it. Or even worse, it's a really rare song that you only have on vinyl and it has not ever been released and is nowhere on the internet. Like say the B-side to a Hazel 7-inch before they signed a Sub Pop, for example, hypothetically, or the bonus 12-inch single that came with the Cranes Forever album. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, well, you got to rip these from the vinyl that you still have. And then it becomes really labor intensive. So a few of those were really rough. So the first 20 tapes were a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It took about two weeks, but now I'm to the ones where the case and the liner notes match up. And it's actually pretty easy. You pop the tape in, you open a garage band session, you hit record, you record one side, you output it to MP4, flip it over, do it again, take a picture of the cover art, tag it in iTunes, drag it over the Plex, put it in Dropbox. You're good to go. Uh, because the whole 45 minutes it's playing, you can do other stuff right you can listen to the music it's really nice so i've done you know i've done about 40 i've posted a bunch they're on facebook um if you want rather than watching facebook each day just drop me a line i'll send you the dropbox links to the master folder of all of them they are a bunch of cassette mixes every folder has the mixed title and then has the two sides in mp4 and then has a cover art jpeg so you can see what's on the tape as well and that cover art is embedded in the id3 tags if you dragged it into itunes you'd see the cover art so i'm trying to make it as sort of useful and versatile as possible but and also like kind of a little bit of an art project but not really because i really do just need to archive them oh, let's turn off the notifications there hold on Do not disturb. Uh, and I would say I'm about a third of the way done. I, and so I got all those done, and now I've got two stacks. I've got a stack of mixtapes made by friends and a stack of mixtapes made by me, and I'm sort of alternating now. And I'm trying to, like, keep variety in years. The mixtapes run from, like, 1987 to, like, 1999-2000-ish. Somewhere in the late 90s, obviously, you switch to CD mixtapes, right? And I don't know if I, I've ripped those in the past. I might deal with them again. We'll see. I'll survey that later. But, uh, you know, so there's about 10 
years where you got these mixtapes. So I try not to do like a bunch from the same time period or same stylistically. But of course, when you're making mixtapes, so they all, you know, they have favorite songs in different periods, like a million of these mixtapes have spiritualized songs on. So yeah, yeah, you try and mix it up. And then that's now that I'm doing ones from other people. I haven't posted any of these yet, but it's imminent. Uh, you know, they have different tastes and they're like wildly different. So that, that'll, that'll add a lot more variety to the case as well. So it's been really, it's been pretty satisfying. I could do it while I'm working because all I have to do is flip the tape and hit record. It's not like, you know, now that I've got through the rough ones, it's not labor intensive. Uh, and I enjoy it and I hope, uh, some of you guys are listening to them. Nobody's actually, I mean, people have said they've downloaded them and people have said it's a cool project and it is a cool project, but nobody's been like, I've listened to this tape and it's awesome. And, but I don't really care because I want them, right. It's like a ancillary art project to like a housekeeping project really. So I'm enjoying it. Um, so yeah, you know, like one of the things I'm realizing is uh, in doing this, uh, everything's a lot easier now. <laughs> uh, where's the mic? I'm, I feel like we hold on a second. There we go. Everything's a lot easier now. Like computers are better. Technology is better. Everything just makes it. You can do this stuff so much more easy. So as an experiment, I took an old photo album, right? So I've got a lot of my photo scan. I think I've talked to you about it before. I've got an immense archive of photo scan. But when I did that through the years, it's really just a sliver of all my photos. I have about 30 boxes of photos that I have, you know, scanned the best of quote unquote, whatever I thought the best of was when I went through these boxes 20 years ago. And I laboriously scanned on a flatbed scanner, each one of them cleaning them up in Photoshop took forever, saved out J or TIFFs actually. And they took forever and it's just all so slow. But now, you know, they're like, I took this photo and I picked one. I, I, I pulled out the Cindy talk tour photo album from 1996. I brought this band to America with my friend, Danny. We put them on tour in America, Cindy talk. And, uh, one of the members of the band died recently. I talked about it. His name was Paul Middleton. He was the drummer. He was a really great guy. I really liked him a lot. I'm really sad to see him die, pass away. And I realized I only had one or two photos of him. And I was like, God, you know, I didn't, I, like, what, where's all my Cindy talk photos? And the answer is they're in this album. And I never really scanned them because you couldn't really put the album on a flatbed scanner back then. But now you can just use the Adobe PDF scan album and make a PDF of the whole album and then use the Google scan app. And then you can just scan every individual photo. So I made a PDF of that whole album and scanned all like 400 photos in the album to perfectly cropped photos and tagged and labeled them. And I did the whole thing in like an hour during a work day when I had a break during lunch, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, that would have taken me weeks in the old days. And so I'm just like, this is awesome. I'm going to go through everything. Like I, you know, I, I think there will be that many surprises in some of these boxes in the photo boxes, because, uh, I think I did a pretty good job picking the best of, but we'll see, right. There'll be surprises and who cares? I can go through a box of photos, 200 photos in like an hour. And I've got 20 of these boxes I could do in a week. And then I've got my nostalgia boxes. I've got another 30 boxes of nostalgia, different houses, different jobs. I can shoot all that stuff in no time. I'm just going full digital on all of it now because it is doable because the technology is so good. So I am very excited about it. It's been taking up most of my time, but it's been really rewarding. It's actually been really good to do this. I did, um, with the physical photo albums, there's been a, there's a lot of loose photos, you know, because a lot of the photo albums are these like 1980s photo albums with those sticky plastic sheets, right? And you pull up the sheet and the photos just fall out or the sheets dry out because they're 30, 40 years old now, these sheets. And so there's a ton of loose photos just sitting with my photo albums. Whenever I move, this has been happening for like a decade. I just move these loose photos and loose pages with them and I don't do anything with them. So I, I the first task of like starting to scan all these photos was like, okay, I'm going to shoot all this. I shot it all. It took like 10 minutes. No problem. Tag label, everything. 10 minutes. It's amazing. 60 photos. 
And then I was like, okay, well, I need to reorganize the family section of my photo library because I got a good folder for my sister and I got a good folder for my parents and my wife and my mother-in-law, my daughter, but like, you know, rest of the family, things like that, like the trips, family trips. And I just needed to get it all organized because if I'm going to do these photo albums, I need it all organized. Right. And then, you know, so going through all that right before you're about to go home to Alaska to see your family, that's, that's an emotional time, you know, and my dad's not doing super well. And I'm like, Ooh, this is. I feel it. I'm, I'm ready to go see my family. I'm in, I'm in full on family mode. So, you know, photo albums and nostalgia, it still works. I have another friend. I don't know what's going on with him. He seems a little sad lately and he's been talking a lot about nostalgia on the web and, you know, posting some time hop stuff and, and, it just all reminds me why I forever originally invested in that company, how weird it is now that I like work at this nostalgia company, because I am definitely deep into nostalgia and it seems like kind of a fitting job. If you look at it that way, um, People ask me, you know, like I read some article that my friend Ari sent me and I was like, oh, you know, funny new job description for me would be, I could put this on my LinkedIn. Like I am highly paid by the the capital class to babysit a small sliver of their capital with an incentive to perhaps join their lower ranks if I succeed and a a sort of backup shot at permanent middle-class status for my family. If I don't and be like, that's my job title. Right. <laughs> but I think now I'm realizing like, if I'm looking at it more like a optimistic, hopeful way is like I work in a nostalgia company and that's pretty cool. I like nostalgia. I am pro nostalgia. I have short shrift for those people that say nostalgia, man. No, I don't have room for nostalgia in my life. Uh, I don't really think that way. I don't really think that way. Anyway, a lot of archiving going on. I am deep into archiving. It's it's fun. I will probably be doing it for a long time. So, you know, if you're a real, real world friend of mine, I'll probably send you some weird stuff at some point. Pictures of us from 20 years ago or something. Uh, who knows? I don't know what I'm going to find. Who knows what I'll find? I have been enjoying Joe Frank, though. That guy was pretty smart. And Kitty Power. Anyway, we'll talk more about that. So, music. Uh, Discogs, I sold one thing. I sold a Michael Nyman CD. Michael Nyman is a composer, classical composer. Well, you know, modern classical. And it was the soundtrack to Prospero's Books, which is a Peter Greenaway film. I saw Michael Nyman play a show at the Berkeley Performing Arts Center of all of his Peter Greenaway soundtracks, and it was fantastic. It's probably early 90s. Uh, and I have most of them on CD, but, you know, I'm going to rip them and sell them. I don't think I'm going to buy them on vinyl. I do like Michael Nyman, though. It's fun to listen to him again. I bought some vinyl, um, partially because of this project I've been working on. And, uh, I realized that the ultra vivid scene staring at the sun and she screamed singles I had on CD single and I had sold them and I did not buy new vinyl versions. So I bought those for like two bucks each. And I realized there was an Eric Bachman album I missed called no recover. Emma and I have been listening to the radio lately in the car because WUNC is a great radio station. And I noticed sometimes when my Bluetooth wasn't connecting, uh, I was like, this song is really good. It sounds like my Bluetooth's connecting. I mean, like, oh, it's the radio. The station's really good. So we've just been listening to the radio lately and they're playing an Eric Bachman song. And I was like, oh my God, I missed the whole album by him. So I bought that. No recover. It's a great record. Eric Bachman is fantastic. And I was really excited. There was a whole album I just missed. Uh, and then, you know, mainly other than that, like, uh, I'm piling up a ton of stuff into the to investigate playlist and I'm getting through some singles. Like I listened to the new Taylor Swift single and the new Waxahachie single and some other singles. Uh, let's take a look. Hold please. Oh yeah. There's a, a new, his name is alive single. There's a new Mandy Moore single. There's a new diet sig single. There's a new windy and Carl single. There's a new Fiora 10 snake. I read about her somewhere. And I was like, I'll take that one. But, you know, I haven't listened to all these albums I got in here that I need to listen to. King Cruel, Rupa, Chuck Mangione. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, oh, I listened to the Elon Musk single. Uh, there's a Slow Crush uh, and Soccer Mommy. Learned about both of those from the radio. Alex Harvey and his soul. 
Hole Band, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. That was from the Nick Cave thing. I haven't listened to any of this stuff yet. So, you know, all I've been listening to are cassettes, weird old cassettes. <laughs> Mixtapes. But to finish up the cassettes that I had ripped the demos and stuff from before, I did finish the Indian Bingo one, Scatological. They were on Independent Projects Record. And that one was really good. It's kind of like a Drony Smiths without the dumb lyrics. I strongly recommend Indian Bingo if you can find them anywhere. Uh, I listened to this DJ set by this guy called Peter the Great, who was like a 16 year old DJ in 1993 at the limelight. And it was awesome. That took me back to my techno days. It was really, really cool. I I did a little Googling of him and he was sort of one of the house DJs there. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I listened to two Drekka EPs. Drekka is Mike Anderson. He, uh, he's now on, on, uh, on Dias Records, uh, Gibby's label. And uh, so, but, you know, he's been my roommate. And I, the tape I listened to was one of the tapes that he made back when he was still living with me. So some very, very early Drekka Hermitage one and the window frame EPs. They were, they were great. I haven't listened to him in age. Well, I've listened to his new stuff as it comes out, but listening to the old stuff was, was really, really good. Uh, There's a band called Woo with an EP called It's Cozy Inside, also an independent project. They're fine. They're uh, a lot of that independent project stuff isn't as good as I remembered it. Uh, that's a label from LA. It's it's a good label. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, it hasn't aged. That woo, it's cozy inside. Did not age super super well. Then I had a cassette from a magazine called Touch Magazine, and it had a compilation cassette in there called Ritual Magnetic North. That was awesome. It had like Aton Donay and the legendary Pink Dots and Neubauten, and it was just a great like mid nineties, early nineties experimental noise cassette. So that was really really satisfying. Uh, and then I had a Dead Can Dance double live cassette for live at Symphony Space in New York, 1990. I saw that tour in Boston at the Berkeley Performing Arts Center. It was a fantastic show. So I, I got, I remember getting a copy of this bootleg from the New York show because I was so moved by the Boston show. And it's very good performance, but it's a crappy recording. So it's it's kind of a bummer, but it really does take you back to those. It's actually like I've seen Dead Can Dance a couple times more since, and they're coming next year. And they have actually gotten so significantly more sophisticated live, which is kind of interesting because you think of them as being just perfection the whole time but like it's it, they've really really they've evolved and improved it's pretty crazy uh, and then I listened to a, a cover of the entire album of pornography by a band called Blinking Lights that I was like, I know this is friends or acquaintances or something. And I I texted Mike Anderson from Drekka and I was like, who's in Blinking Lights? And he's like, oh, it's one of the old uh, Drekka co-band members and my cousin Daryl. I'm like, oh, OK, well, cool. So they did Blinking Lights and or they did pornography, the Cure album, and it's really good. And apparently they did the top as well, Mike said. And Mike's on that one with them. But I don't have a copy of the top. So, you know, if you want to know, anybody's got a copy of the blinking lights cover of the top by the cure i would love it <laughs> so that's it for music it's more ripping i've listened to a lot of mixtapes i've listened to like 20 mixtapes and they're great it's been great i've been discovering old new bands i forgot all the way all about the darling buds big catholic guilt daisy chainsaw just all sorts of things it's been really really satisfying unlike television <laughs> So, you know, through all of this as well, I'm watching the impeachment. I watch pretty much every day of the impeachment. I skipped the last two days of Senate speakers just, you know, babbling. I, I stopped on Monday and then I I watched the final vote, but I didn't watch any of that Wednesday stuff. And that was very frustrating. I felt like I was doing my civic duty and it was really painful. And there were some great moments from Adam Schiff and the gang. But, you know, it was pretty painful. Uh, I knew it was going to happen. Of course, we all did. 
But uh, yeah, I guess I did it. I watched it, so that's something you know. I should have watched the Clinton one. I was almost, I was old enough. I should have paid more attention. I was really bad about politics when I was young, and I'm glad I'm not anymore. Uh, I watched the Iowa caucuses all night that night. That was hilarious. I feel like they've never actually showed how absurd a caucus was, and I've never lived in a caucus state. So, you know, before I realized what a debacle the counting would be, it was fun to watch all those people there. And I was like, that seems like it would be kind of fun to be in a caucus and you know drink wine and stuff. But as an alternative to actually everybody being allowed to vote, it seems really stupid. But it was very educational. I've never seen a caucus, so I enjoyed that. I did not watch the State of the Union, of course, and nor did I watch the New Hampshire debate last night. I've seen enough debates from these guys. Also, it's kind of bullshit. New Hampshire and Iowa are the first two states, and it's even more bullshit that New Hampshire has in its state constitution that it's the first primary. And I'm just like, yeah, you're stupid. I don't really care about this. Uh, I like New Hampshire. It's a perfectly pleasant state, but it, you know, there are no black people there and it is just not representative of the country. And it's a stupid state to have the first one. And I was watching MSNBC last night and Chris Hayes had this, like, you know, he's at the NBC MSNBC headquarters in New Hampshire. And it's like a 50,000 foot old brick mill warehouse building. And I'm like, way too much money is spent covering the New Hampshire primary. And I don't care. I mean, I care about the results, obviously. I mean, you know, my candidate is not going to win, but, uh, yeah, I just I couldn't watch that debate. I, we did finish Adventure Time, though, which was pretty exciting. We finished the whole thing. It was very emotional at the end. And, I, you know, I think uh, that's really a phenomenal show. We might just start it up again and keep watching. There's so much to it. There are moments I'm like, this is not a good episode. There are definitely a few clunkers in there. There's a few storylines I, I can't get behind. And, uh, you know, Finn acts like an idiot often, but he is a 16-year-old boy, so it's not really that surprising. He acts like an idiot. Uh, but, man, yeah, it's really quite an accomplishment. I'm impressed. Uh, we finished The Crown. Season two or three was perhaps not as good as the other two seasons. The acting was fantastic and the stories are interesting, but it didn't capture quite the same way for me. But uh, it's still I think it's a very good show and it's very well done. And then so then we were like, OK, well, we just finished both of these things that we were watching. And, you know, especially Adventure Time, that took months. And we're like, we got to pick a new show. And that's like, you know, paralysis of choice. We are, you know, I got a whole dilemma around Picard and paying for CBS all access. It just strikes me as wrong. And we've sort of like started the process of looking at our cable bill and figuring out what we can cut to like pay for a few of these extra services. But we haven't done it yet. So we're sort of holding off on Picard till we do that. I know. I know it's it, people are I have a few friends that are very upset with me for not watching it yet but so we're like in the meantime we got to pick a new show well, we actually need to pick new, two new shows we need to pick a half hour show and an hour long show so i was like okay we're gonna watch four the first episode of four different shows and we're gonna pick it's four shows that we've heard very, you know varyingly degrees of good stuff about so we picked cheer the witcher succession and his dark materials which i have actually not heard a lot about and some vaguely positive stuff for some fans but i actually find i i find it very i'm very curious about it so i just threw that one in there so we watched an episode of Cheer, we watched an episode of The Witcher, and uh, they're both great. I mean, Witcher is weird and overwrought and, and you know, kind of like uh, maudlin in places and the music is kind of weird, but uh, overall we found it kind of compelling and it's strangeness. And same with Cheer. I mean, these people are <laughs> very different than my life, but I was like, all right, yeah, this is educational. Uh, and then I was like, okay, well now we got to watch the other two, his dark materials in succession. And I was like, I just want to watch another Witcher. So I was like, okay, well, I guess we picked our show. So we have now watched four episodes of the Witcher. Uh, we're trying to finish it before I go to Alaska in two weeks. And uh, it's interesting. I'm into it. I like it, I guess. You know, I'm not really a fantasy kind of guy. Unless you think of fantasy as sci-fi, which I do. I'm just, just, you know, especially because there's a thing in this one called the collision of the spheres. I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is a planet where like a piece of the Death Star landed on or something. <laughs> 
just make it into Star Wars, you know. And uh, the Witcher's got this magic power that's very similar to a Jedi force push. So I'm like, okay, well, he's like a Jedi. So now it's sci-fi. So now I'm into it. Uh, but yeah, so that's what we're watching. Uh, it's fine. It's interesting. It's weird. It's uh, kind of like... I bet it won't age well, kind of the same way Baz Luhrmann doesn't age well. But at the time, you're like, yeah, it's kind of compelling. I don't know. Also, like, no one but Henry Cavill is known. They're all newbies. Uh, one guy uh, was, he's the voice of Thrawn in Star Wars Rebels. But other than that, I mean, they're all just newcomers. It's kind of crazy. So props to them. Uh, movies, I have not been to the movies. I'm probably going to go see Harley Quinn tomorrow. I like to support the uh, female-led comic book movies and so i'll probably go to that tomorrow we did watch mr americana on netflix it was fine it was good it was very interesting you know i, I couldn't help feel like maybe it was still kind of a little bit of press manipulation but uh you know it was interesting interesting about the anonymous boyfriend she wouldn't say anything about too she just said i'm in love and she saw like his hands in one shot and like the back of his head in one shot and they want to see who it was i thought that was kind of interesting i wonder if like the crazy fans know who it is they must right i don't really care enough uh yeah anyway books so i finished that book about fdr and the supreme court fdr and chief justice hughes the president of the supreme court and the epic battle over the new deal by james f simon uh, and where I left off last time was really true. Like, uh, you know, there wasn't really a switch in time to save nine and his court stuffing plan failed and he might've been able to make it work. You know, there's some, there's some pointers there for any democratic presidential nominee thinking about different ways to, to stuff the court in ways that would work and not work. Don't do it his way. But, uh, and you know, I think the, the analysis is really incorrect. Really? Like there are two things that happened. One is chief justice Hughes made a lot of bad calls early in his, his, uh, chief justice ship in a misguided effort to appear bipartisan that he later realized was a futile effort and he switched and the timing on those, they call it a switch. The biggest one that people use as evidence of the switch was the first ruling that came out after the court packing plan was announced. But in fact, it had been decided before the court packing plan had been announced. So it's not really a switch one, but really what happened. And I did not know is that FDR was just stupid lucky, right? I mean, it was a little luck and a little domino theory, but like he had four Supreme court justices retire in the first two years of his presidency of his 16 years right i mean or 15 or however many years he was president that's unprecedented and lucky and like my god imagine if that happened to trump uh you know there were five conservative justices and one of them retired and so once he got that person on there he pretty much solved this problem but then you know once that happened the other three of the other four conservative uh justices were like they retired in rapid succession you know they all had their reasons but also i suspect once they realized that they were in, they had no power anymore they probably just kind of lost interest one of them retired and fdr figured this out he really did want to retire the whole time but the congress had cut the supreme court's retirement plan <laughs> So he just restored it and he got rid of the guy because the guy's like, that's all I've been waiting for is my pension. So in a way, his court plan did kind of work because <laughs> once that guy retired, the other ones are like, well, we're never going to win again. And then they retire in rapid succession. So I don't know. There's a lot to be learned there. And the, the basic sort of cliff notes of history was incorrect. So I feel smarter. But really what I learned from this, as well as that book, you may recall, I read called the uh, Second Amendment of Biography is that conservatives basically lie about originalism all the time. We talk about this now with gun control. 
But this book made it very clear they've been doing this for hundreds of years. They just make up originalism and they pretend that they know what's going on with the founders, even though they're wrong, then they're lying. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like teach the controversy. It's not he said, she said, or he said, he said. It's just they're making it up and they're wrong. Right. And I will give you some examples. For a long time, they decided that the interstate commerce clause wasn't valid. And they decided it wasn't valid because there was another clause in the constitution that said that power is not delegated in the constitution went to the states. So they just decided that the interstate commerce clause was included in that, even though the interstate commerce clause is a power delegated to Congress. I'm not simplifying their argument. I'm not like giving you their argument in bad faith. That was their argument. So that makes no sense. They're like, well, the power is not delegated. Go to the States, interstate commerce. No. And you know, what they did was they, they made up a thing called close and far readings of the interstate commerce clause. And they insisted that this was done by the framers, although there's no evidence whatsoever that this was done. So a close reading of the interstate commerce clause would be my truck goes over a border. A far reading of the interstate commerce clause would be that my factory, which gets its parts from other states and ships everything in the factory to other states is interstate commerce, which of course it is. But the close reading says that's not because the factory is only in one state, right? They just made all that up. You know, you say what you want, you could interpret that eventually that way, but they insisted that was the framers intention when it manifestly was not. So for like a hundred years, there was this made up close and far interpretation of the interstate commerce clause and combined with the powers not delegated clause that they insisted the framers believed, even though they didn't, they just made it all up. Right. And so finally, when he was flipped, that was what they, the first thing they got rid of was this ridiculous reading of the interstate commerce clause made up on fake originalism. The conservatives just fabricated, right? That's not the only time. Here's another one. There's a contract clause in the constitution, right? Like you, there's the, the sanctity of contracts. You hear this all the time, especially from conservatives. And the Constitution basically says, like, contract, con, contracts are valid and the government can't get involved in contracts without due process, right? That's what it says. It's very important to remember, without due process. So what they decided is that the original people that wrote the Constitution decided, meant that when they said due process, they meant no process, right? They just, they just changed it. There's no evidence that the framers felt this way because they put into the Constitution the words due process, which means there needs to be a process, a fair process before you change something in a contract. But they're like, nope, nope, there's no such thing. You can't do it. They said you can't. And we're just ignoring what they put in there about due process because we know what they really meant, even though we don't. They just lied. They just made it up. So they believed conservatives just were like, you can, and this included slavery, mind you, that if there was a contract, that the government could not change anything in the contract ever. Contract killings, government can't do anything about because, you know, due process didn't exist. They just lied. They just made it up. And they stuck to that. They stuck to their guns to that for a hundred years until finally the FDR court just smashed it and it was done. Here's the, this is the best one, right? So then they decided they, they, this one still exists that they decided corporations were people. And this is an originalist con uh, argument, but it's an originalist argument based on the 14th amendment, which was ratified in 1868 after the civil war, but it's originalist. <laughs> and so they're just like corporations are people. So Hugo Black gets on the court and, uh, 
you know, FDR points him. He, uh, he had some problems in his past. He was in the KKK. He turns out to be like the biggest defender of liberal rights. And he writes this amazing defense. He's like, okay, so here's the thing about your originalist argument of the 14th amendment is that we have newspapers. We have the, the diaries of the people that wrote this amendment. We have, we have the minutes of every state ratifying it. We have speeches from the people that wrote it. And we know they didn't, we know exactly what it was about. It was about, it was about the civil war. It was about the former slaves. It was about their rights. Not once in any of it did they mention corporations, but here you are telling us that the original intent of the framers of this amendment meant for corporations to be included in the 14th amendment when manifestly they don't, because we have all the words here. It's not like the constitutional convention where they were like hidden in a room that there was no official minutes. Like we know it all. It wasn't to do with, 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 uh, corporations. And that's still the law and that's still stupid and they still pretend it's true. And it's all based on a lie reading of the 14th amendment that we know factually is incorrect. So then when you get to the second amendment, right, the bare arms and their new originalist interpretation, you know, like it's just a lie. They just lie. Like the other four times they've just made it up. It's really amazing. I knew that they had a tendency to do this in Scalia and, you know, there's a good history of that in that second amendment biography book, but I didn't realize how far back it went, how often they just pretend to have the only understanding of the framers intent. And they also just made up that understanding. It's pretty amazing. So that was interesting. I kind of think I'm wonder. I should read more Supreme court books, but it'll be a while. I got a big queue. Uh, and then I read William Gibson's agency. It came out this week. It's the sequel to the peripheral, his last book. I've been waiting for it for quite some time. A little annoyed. He stole the name of my book, but, uh, you know, I guess I can live with that. It's a good book. I enjoyed it. I, I was, especially the first half, I was very, very compelled by the first half. Got a little, a little laggy in the middle, you know, a little, uh, I read this review and it was like, a lot of this book is a chase. And I was like, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh man, he's right. <laughs> but really the biggest failing in that book is that the book portrays billionaires as intelligent people with intellectual curiosity, especially Silicon Valley billionaires. And I'm like, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> There's a guy that's like a lightly, like a lightly veiled, you know, version of Mark Zuckerberg, who's just does things because they're interesting and he's not trying to make money or power. He just thinks it's interesting and he spends ungodly amounts of his money on this like sort of hobby thing to help one person out. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah, they're not intellectually curious and they're not, they're not really that profoundly brilliant either. They're just people and that's not how they act. And that's not how anyone would act in that situation. Uh, so that was a little annoying. Once I had that epiphany, I was like, Ooh, yeah, that's a whole problem with this book, but I still did like it. It is second in a trilogy and there's the larger mystery of the sort of mechanics of how these books work there. And it's sort of like a time travel thing, but not really. And there's a mechanic that's still a mystery in the story. And so I am looking forward to the third one. It took them a long time to write the second one though, because of the Trump administration and current political climate. And that figures heavily in the book sort of alternate reality to our reality where Hillary won that sort of thing. So I'm assuming he's not going to have quite as long to rewrite the third book, write the third book. He said he's, he had to throw out several versions of agency before he found a way to make it work. And he did actually find a really good way to make it work. He just, the plot itself is a little lacking in some places, but I enjoyed it. I finished that last night, so I don't know what I'm going to read next. So I guess you'll just have to find out in two weeks. let's see work is going well yeah 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 the new guy's awesome brandon i like him a lot 
and we just did a big product roadmap while we're in the middle of it, but it's, it's, you know, coming together. That's been very, very, we sort of know what we're doing for the next two, three quarters on the product. That's pretty exciting. Got a big company dinner on Monday night with uh, some people, including our illustrator, the guy that draws all those cool Abe illustrations. I've never actually met that guy. He's a reclusive Canadian dude that I've never seen in person. So that's very exciting. Uh, I just, we, uh, David, the head of sales and I just closed the contract that we've been negotiating and working in redlining for six months. So that's pretty exciting. Got a new 409A evaluation. That's very exciting. Got a board meeting on Tuesday. Very exciting. Doing all the option grants uh, and then <laughs> renewing all the insurance. It's funny. Emma was like, what do you, what do, you do today? It's like, oh, I worked on insurance all day. And she's like, what? And I was like, oh, you know, a lot of the days I don't tell you what I did. I just worked on insurance all day. And she's like, what? And she made me list all the insurance policies we have. And it occurs to me that this job, a lot of this job, a lot of operations jobs are insurance. You just got to buy a lot of insurance. You're always negotiating and shopping for insurance. It's pretty crazy. And then I read an article the other day about how founders, are they just like brands? Do they not want to run their companies? Do they just want to like run a brand? And I'm like, that's fair. I mean, that's cool if they do, because I think operators like me, we just want to run a company. We don't really care what the company does. I've said this a few times. Like if, you know, the, I, I would run a company that was like a factory or a soap company or, you know, I don't really care about it being a tech company anymore. There's some advantages to tech companies, you know, a lot of, you know, physical infrastructure plans, capital depreciation stuff. You don't have to worry about lower insurance rates, stuff like that. But really like, uh, who cares if founders just want to run a brand? I just want to run a company. So, you know, it works out. I think that's all right. <laughs> Uh, and then on the rest of the projects, you know, projects section is the last section of this podcast, but it's a little weird because so many of my projects are media projects now, but I did hear from the people working on the Japanese translation of the Trek book and they are making good progress. They said they're not quite done, but they're almost done. Uh, which is good. They'll be done in time for me to watch Picard and make a new edition. <laughs> uh, and I got all most of my 1099s from writing this year. They, you know, tax time's coming, right? All my 1099s are rolling in. I made, uh, you know, about nine, ten thousand $10,000 last year on writing. Not quite enough to make a living. <laughs> but uh, it's getting there, you know? Like, my goal is to be able to make a sort of, like, just above middle uh, minimum wage living, like thirty-ish thousand dollars a year. I think that'd be lovely if I could make that off of my writing. So I'm a third of the way there after five years of trying. That's not too bad, right? Yeah, another ten years. Uh, and I made five dollars on Spotify from uh, Defective Frequency, the public's business. So that's pretty cool. I was like, you know, man, I read these people. They're like, I got a million streams on Spotify, and I only got like three cents. I'm like, somebody's ripping them off, man. I made five bucks, and nobody even listened to my record. So that's pretty cool. I don't know. I'm going to dig into that a little bit more, but it's kind of interesting. And then I got my diet. I'm down 13 pounds. It's pretty cool. I want to lose 47 more. And there are about 47 more weeks in the year. So, you know, I'm going to lose about a pound a week for the rest of the year. That's my goal. I think it can be done. I'm feeling okay about it. It's a little slow, but, you know, slow and steady wins the race, right? I got travel, stuff like that. So some weeks will be good. Some weeks will be bad. Yeah. That ending was in the exact same place as last week. These two podcasts, not last week, two weeks ago, and this one are the exact same length. I think that's the first time that's ever happened. Thank you for listening. Good to talk to you guys. Get some stuff off my chest. Hope you had a lovely two weeks. Hope your next two weeks are great. And uh, talk to you guys soon. Take care. <laughs>